Most people live most of their lives between joyful experiences. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Brothers are bringing Bibles here. Most of us live most of our lives between joyful experiences. And in these in-between times, where do you seek joy? It does seem the natural sort of goal to sort of fill our life with happiness, doesn't it? And sometimes we get in a mindset of thinking that the, the secret to living a more consistently happy or joyful life is having more plentiful, joyful experiences. That question, where do you seek joy? I, I did with that question what everybody does with their question. I Googled it. <laughs> one writer often seven ways to create more joy in your life. She writes, number one, undertake a challenging activity with a commitment to mastering it. Number two, actively seek joy through inspiration, whether that's religious or new age or what have you. Number three, she says, engage in an activity that's pleasurable and feels like play. Number four, deal with the sadness that blocks joy. Whatever is that barrier, remove it. Number five, honor yourself. Notice, consciously and frequently. Number six, give yourself a break from the day-to-day -day world. And number seven, say the word joy often and contemplate. Think about its meaning. All those things have their place. People should do things like this. But perhaps you've noticed a couple things about this list. First of all, this person seems to think joy is mostly about activity, doing something challenging, doing something pleasurable, and so on. But what if you're in a situation where activities aren't possible, perhaps because of health limitations or, like the Apostle Paul in his letter, imprisonment or poverty? Second, the list makes joy about you and me, doesn't it? Honor yourself consciously and frequently. Give yourself a break. You should, as Burger King tells us, have it your way. See, it's what we desire or like, according to this list. There's no thought for bringing joy to others, right? There's no thought about what makes God happy. I mean, if you live long enough, you know, like I know, it's entirely possible for us to live for our own joy and bring a great deal of misery to other people and displease God at the same time. So joy can't be finally about us. Well, there's a third thing about this list. This, the list sounds like a formula for escapism. See, joy becomes a break from the world. Removing sadness and, and just repeating the word like a, like a chant, like a mantra until we feel something. For many people, escapism becomes addiction and addiction destroys joy. So I wonder how well escapism will work for having joy in the real world when we wake up to life as it really is. And isn't there a way to have joy even as we endure the brokenness of this world? 
That's the burden of this book, Philippians. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are halfway through the book in this series that we have called Serious Joy. Because, beloved, I am convinced that God wants us to be happy. Not in the ways in which we necessarily define it, not through escapism or or just merely busying ourselves with activity. He wants us to have that joy that is actually beyond this world and changes how we endure this world. See, a serious joy doesn't have to run away from hard things. It'll transform us right in the midst of what's hard. And this is what Paul is teaching us through this letter. And we've come really to the heart of the letter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And this is where we see Paul's own sort of strategy for rejoicing always, for having this delight in Christ, no matter his circumstance. He's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He hears that the church in Philippi is suffering similar things that he has suffered. So these are suffering people exchanging letters but cultivating joy. So what's his secret? How do we increase our joy in knowing Jesus? If you're taking notes this morning, uh, the sermon has three points. Number one, we want to remember to rejoice. Remember to rejoice. That's verse one. Number two, we want to put no confidence in the flesh. We want to put no confidence in the flesh, verses two to seven. And then number three, we want to consider Jesus far better than everything else. We want to count Jesus far better than everything else, verses 8 to 11. Philippians chapter 3, begin in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So how does Paul cultivate joy? Verse 1 tells us to remember to rejoice in the Lord. It's a straightforward command. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
Paul says, finally here, but he ain't done. He goes on for two more chapters. See, even in the Bible, the preacher gets like two or three conclusions, right? <laughs> That's right. But I think finally might be interpreted as meaning something like, here's the bottom line. But when it's all said and done, Paul gives essentially one command in this book, and it's right here. Rejoice in the Lord. And striking as we've been reading this book, we see that, that Paul models rejoicing, doesn't he? Chapter 1, verse 4, he says he prays for them with joy. Chapter 1, verse 18, even when Paul thinks about those preachers who preach with a false motive, he rejoices that they preach Christ. Also in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, when Paul thinks about being helped by their prayers and the Holy Spirit delivering him, he, he rejoices. He says, yes, and again, I say, I will rejoice. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul is glad and rejoices even when he thinks about sacrificing his life for their faith. We cannot escape this conclusion that the Apostle Paul suffers more than anyone else in this letter, and yet he rejoices more than anyone else in this letter. He's a model of rejoicing in the Lord. And not only is he a model, but that's what he works for. He works for the joy of the church. See that there in chapter 1, verse 25. And Paul writes there that he expects to get out of prison and to live for their progress and joy in the faith. Philippians 2, verse 28. It's why he sends Epaphroditus, that seeing him, that they would receive him with all joy. So whether Paul comes to them personally or whether he sends one of his ministry partners to them, Paul is always seeking and working for the joy of the church. It's one of the main ways he describes the goal of his ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, the apostle writes there, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, that you stand firm in the faith. So Paul is not only a model, it's also what he works for. But in this text now, he gives this to them as a command. So the joy of the church, consequently then, does not depend solely or mainly on the leaders of the church. Leaders should work for and model the spiritual joy that we hope the people to have. But the people who are led, now listen, must stop passively expecting others to make them happy. Amen. Verse 1 is a command given to the church. Rejoice in the Lord. It's the first time that Paul commands it. But look down at chapter 4, verse 4. He says it there again. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. I think that's what he has in mind in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says to write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. He doesn't mind repeating the commandments of God. He doesn't mind calling them again and again and again to rejoice themselves in Christ. The fact that rejoicing is a command implies several things. Think with me about this. Number one, it implies that joy is a moral responsibility. It is right and good and necessary to pursue joy. God commands it. To not pursue your joy in Christ is a sin. 
to allow ourselves to wallow in misery and unhappiness is a sin. It is beneath the inheritance that God has provided for us in his son. It is a moral responsibility. It implies, number two, that the Christian is personally accountable to God for their joy. We can't outsource it. We can't shift the blame to others because of our unhappiness. God commands you and me to be joyful in Christ, and on that day, we'll give an account for how we handled our hearts, for how we stewarded our affections, for what care we gave to our happiness in Christ. You realize that your joy is a stewardship God has given you? One day, we'll appear before Christ and God will say, in my son, I provided for you all the resources you need for infinitely, infinite joy. What'd you do with it? We don't want to be the servant who says, I know you were a hard master reaping where you didn't sow. So I took your one talent and went and buried it. No, beloved, we want to be the one in the parable who says, you gave me five, you gave me ten. Here's five or ten more for our own joy in the Lord. Number three. The fact that joy here is a command implies that by grace and by the Spirit of Christ, joy is always within our ability. Philippians 4.4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Notice, always. Isn't it the adjectives and the adverbs that trip you up? Words like all, all the time, always. You don't get no vacation from joy. We're not supposed to take breaks from gladness. We're to rejoice in the Lord always. Listen, we can be in unhappy circumstances, and those be real. We don't have to be escapists about it. We can be in situations in life that really do call for lament, and we ought to lament. Pain may be nearly unbearable, but it is not true that such cares make joy impossible. If it were true that such cares, such pains, such brokenness made joy impossible, it would make Philippians 4.4 false. But God's word is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. He says rejoice in the Lord always, which puts joy in the reach of possibility. A fourth implication. I think that fact that rejoicing the Lord is a command means we must let go of our passive approach to joy and instead actively seek the greatest possible happiness we can get in Christ. It is your duty to make your soul glad in the Lord. And there is more happiness in Jesus available to us than we are experiencing at any given time. Sad or glad, there's more joy in the Lord for the people of God to have. Now, ask yourself, have you been thinking that sort of low levels of joy that sort of a mundaneness to life is your inheritance. Have you been thinking that that's the best 
that you can hope for, and so you settle for it. See, Philippians 3.1 is screaming at you. There is more for you in the Lord than you currently experience. More joy is yours to be had. Now realize at this point that many Christians, the average Christian, is probably hearing this and thinking, how? Something about this seems far away and misty. It it sounds good. You feel it. I I want to be glad in the Lord. But you've never learned to rejoice in the Lord. And So this is a command that seems like it's undoable. I want to suggest to you that the rest of this text begins to unpack for us the how. The sort of bottom line, basic, fundamental strategies for how we rejoice in the Lord and how we can do it always, no matter our circumstance. It's really the next two points of the sermon. So the first thing we wish to do to rejoice in the Lord more fully is to put no confidence in the flesh. To put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 2 gives us an urgent warning. Verses 3 to 6 begin to unpack for us a little bit of Paul's own background and and personal story. And verse 7 begins to sort of, it introduces for us what Paul does with that background, how he thinks about it. And you might think of this as three looks. We have three looks when it comes to putting no confidence in the flesh. We are to look out for bad influence. We are to look away from our old selves. And we got to look forward to Christ. See there, verse 2, look out for bad influence. Paul says there, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now that first look out sounds really harsh to modern sensibilities, doesn't it? Paul just calls some folks dogs. Who are these dogs? Well, it's interesting. Those three terms there, dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, which is a reference to those false teachers who are teaching circumcision is necessary to salvation. If we just take that particular and think about the category of unfaithful teachers, those three sort of categories appear together in several places in the Scripture. Psalm chapter 22, verses 16 and 19, that messianic psalm about the crucifixion of Jesus, the psalmist says there, I am surrounded by dogs. I am encompassed by evildoers. He's looking forward to the day when Christ was crucified and people were around him yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Or we come down to Isaiah chapter 55 around verse 16. Isaiah there too talks about these false teachers and he refers to them as dogs and evildoers. And then you go down to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 22, I think around verse 15, where we see the heavenly city in verses 14 and 15, and the writer there says that the gates will be closed to certain people, to dogs, to sexually immoral, uh, those who practice witchcraft, and so on and so forth. And so these three terms here actually go together, and it's just a picture of the, the, the sort of hungry wandering of the lost person like an unwanted dog, like those who feed upon the scraps of sin and and trounce through the the alleyways of rebellion against God. Paul says, look out for these folks. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who teach you false things, who mutilate the flesh for bad company, Paul writes in Romans, corrupts good manner, good character. 
He says, if you want to be joyful in the Lord, there's some folks you can't invest with. Some folks you can't partner with. Some folks you can't do life with. Because they're doing a whole different kind of life than the life that Jesus calls us to. They're going an entirely different way. They're wandering from God, running from God, rebelling against God. And you can't yoke up with that if you want to find a higher happiness in Christ. So Paul says, look out. Watch out. He writes in Romans 16, verse 7, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Or in the King James, he says, mark and avoid. Identify them and go the other way. It is for your happiness that you be selective about who you listen to and who you walk with. Don't ever think you're being bigoted or prejudiced or some such thing. No, it's for your joy and your safety that you be selective about your company. Look out for bad influence. But then he says this, and this is where he gives the bulk of his attention. Look away from our old selves. He says at the end of verse 2, those who mutilate the flesh, and, and that opens up for him this this, in verse 3, this statement of our true identity. He says, for, this is why you want to watch out for those folks. For, we ain't like those folks. We are the real circumcision. He takes the very sign of God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament, and he applies it not to ethnic Israel. He applies it to the church. The church is the true circumcision. We are those who are circumcised not with dead foreskin, but whose hearts are circumcised. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, here's how you will know who are the real circumcision. Number one, they worship by the Spirit of God. They're the ones who answered the call of John 4, 24, when Jesus says the Father seeks those who will worship him by spirit and in truth. Their worship, their, their offering of themselves to God, their ascribing to God his worth is driven by, fueled by, powered by the Spirit of God himself. They didn't come to God in their flesh. They come to God in their spirit. And here's how you know if you're worshiping God by his spirit. Because number two, they glory in Christ Jesus. There, that word glory there, we might translate exalt or boast. Their hearts delight. Their hearts boast. The, the thing that excites them most isn't themselves. Isn't what they're doing. It's the Lord that they're worshiping. They boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. They glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of their so-called fame, all of their so-called notoriety, all of their delight, what pleasures their soul is not themselves, but Jesus. They sing, just give me Jesus. They delight in him. And as they are delighting in Jesus and worshiping him by the Spirit, there's something they don't do. It's the last phrase there in verse 3. Who put no confidence in the flesh. Now that has a double meaning. They're not confident in the Jewish circumcision, right? They're not saying, hey, we're God's people because we're circumcised. But you see in verses 4 to 6, that opens up a, a wider notion of the flesh. 
He's saying they don't put any confidence in their earthly attainments and their earthly lives. And Paul uses himself as an example there. He runs down his own biography. The first three things or four things he says speaks to his ethnic identity. The next three or four things speaks to his religious identity. Paul says, listen, if anybody could boast, I can boast more. Now, you know somebody boasting me like, man, that ain't nothing. You think you got reason to put confidence in the flesh? I got more. And then he runs down his pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day, like a faithful Jewish person observing the Old Testament law. Of the people of Israel, God's chosen people brought into covenant through the promises that God made to them. Of the tribe of Benjamin. And he just sums it up. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He never met nobody more Jewish than Paul. Are you boasting about you Jewish? Man, you ain't Jewish. I'm Jewish. That's, his, that's kind of his ethnic background. Then he gives us his religious sort of credentials. He says, listen. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. That was his denomination. That was his tribe. That was his, that was his theological tribe, the strict observers of the law, the ones who took the word of God seriously as inspired by God, the ones who took seriously the supernatural things in the Bible. Unlike the Sadducees who denied the resurrection and denied all manner of miraculous things, these were the Bible guys. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, as to fervency, burning, passion for the religion of my ancestors, I was so zealous, I persecuted the church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 15, that, that he was a violent man, a blasphemer, and a persecutor. But he said, I acted in ignorance. So not only did Paul think he was right in all of his theological tribalism, he attacked people that he thought was wrong in persecuting the church. And then as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Oh, that was in mic drop. <laughs> Think you boasted, man. Listen, beloved. We want to be careful about our tribalisms. Paul said, I belong to the right ethnic tribe. Could boast in a wonderful ethnic cultural pedigree. And he was among those, like so many other ancient Jewish persons, who was swollen up in pride at God's election. We are the chosen people of God. But they did not know God, did not receive his Messiah. And Paul was chief among them. And we want to be careful, beloved, with our theological tribalism. We want to be careful that we don't get so caught up in being precise theologically, dotting every I, crossing every T, that we know the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. We don't be so boastful. I'm reformed. I'm Calvinist. I'm Orthodox. but you don't love nobody. You persecuting and attacking everybody that doesn't hold your view on everything. 
There's a place for orthodox. We believe in orthodox. Don't get me wrong. We ain't going off the rails here. But ain't nobody been saved by their theology. Amen. We're saved by saving faith in Christ alone. So Paul says we got to look away from all that. That's what he means. He, he, he mentions all of that to say, I ain't got no confidence in it. And which means I don't build my identity on it. Right? And I don't depend upon it to make me happy. Right? Now, we live in a world where everybody says, build your identity and base your happiness on your flesh. What school you went to, how much money you make, who you married, what she looked like, what he looked like, what kind of car they drive, what kind of clothes they wear. All around us, secular and religious, there are folks who are basing their happiness and building their identity on the flesh. And that's why they ain't happy. It's a self-defeating strategy. Because beauty fades. Muscles sag. Cars become buckets. (laughs) Sometimes you can't make the mortgage. Listen, beloved, all of that is temporary and fading and will be burned up in the world to come. If you build your happiness on that, you're building on sand. If you build your identity on that, you are building on fog. So Paul says, look away from it. Look away from your tribal identity. Look away from your religious attainment. And it tells us in verse 7 what to look to. But whatever gain I had, I counted as laws for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain we have, beloved, that comes to us by virtue of culture and race and ethnicity and class and education, whatever gain we have that comes to us by virtue of our religious history and our religious activity, there's a certain way we have to think about it. And there's something else we have to think about in exchange. We have to think about Christ. We have to look forward to him, to enjoying him. That's the secret of happiness. It's doing everything for the sake of Christ. Now, verse 7 opens up to us the extended meditation in verses 8 to 11, which brings us to a couple of application questions and then our third point. So for thinking, ask yourself, who or what outside of Christ holds influence on my thinking and living? Who's influencing you? And maybe a follow-up question to that would be, would God regard them as dogs, evildoers, or false teachers? How does God think of them? Number two, What about yourself, about your natural earthly life? Are you tempted to glory or boast in instead of Christ? Do you have a fleshly source of joy or identity that you're trusting? Be honest with yourself before the Lord. Your joy is at stake. 
Look away from yourself. And then number three, is there anything you would not count as loss compared to Christ? Look forward. We rejoice in the Lord when we put no confidence in the flesh. That's only the negative side of the answer. Now we want to turn in verses 8 to 11 and think about the positive side of the answer. We rejoice in the Lord also when we count Jesus far better than everything else. Verse 7, Paul says, But whatever I gain, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, he continues, Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He don't stop there. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's trash. There's a divine calculus happening here. Paul is counting funny. The key word in this section is that word count or consider. It's thinking with an eye toward evaluating. All right? And since chapter 2, Paul has been telling us that we have to think in certain ways as Christians. So look at chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says there, do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit or rivalry. But in humility, what? Count others more important than yourselves. A little bit later, chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we come to that word again here in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3. The secret of rejoicing is learning how to count the way the kingdom counts. How to evaluate in our thinking the way the kingdom evaluates in its thinking. And in this counting, you take the whole world, add it together, multiplied by a factor of infinity and you put Jesus on the other side and you count everything as loss and Jesus as gain. My, one of my nephews, Scooter, that's what we call him, when he was a little boy, maybe about two years old, before he could count properly, I mean, one day he emptied his bank with my wife, Christy, sitting on the living room floor at my mom's house, and they were going to count the money in his piggy bank. And they were sitting there, and Scooter started dividing the coins, and he kept putting the, the pennies over in Christy's area. And he kept raking the silver coins over in his area. Now, he don't know a penny from a nickel from a quarter. But she said, well, what you doing? He said, you take all the brown ones. I take the silver ones. <laughs> and he knew something about value, even if he couldn't tell you what the coin was worth. And, and it strikes me that what Paul is doing here, Paul is saying, listen, I take everything that I was culturally. I take everything that I was ethnically. I take everything that I was religiously. I take all of my training, they're pennies. And I slide them over in the column called loss. And then I think about Jesus. 
And that's silver and gold, that's diamond, that's rubies. And I grab that over here and I slide that over here in my column called gain. That's the calculus that he's doing here. Everything that you can think of when you compare it to Jesus is nothing. It is not just nothing, it is loss. It's putting you in the hole. But Jesus is gain. Paul is meditating on the surpassing worth, the surpassing greatness, the unparalleled excellence of knowing Jesus compared to everything else. That's the calculus. Jesus plus anything equals loss. Jesus minus everything equals gain. That's the positive secret to Paul's joy. That's why he can say, hey, I suffered the loss of everything. And I ain't mad. I count it as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Is that how you think about things? Is that the calculus that goes through our mind? John Piper, in a sermon on missions, was asked to address the missions conference. He was asked the question, what's the, what's the greatest need of every missionary? In a very Piper fashion, he goes away and he meditates and he broods and he comes out. He says in a very Piper way, greatest need of every missionary is to know Jesus better and to love Jesus more than anything else they know and love in all the world. It is the greatest need of every Christian. To know Jesus better and love Jesus more than anything and everything else we know and we love. This is what Paul is teaching us here. This means Jesus has no competitors, no rivals. Nothing holds any value compared to him. So let me give you a sentence to fill in the blank on. Can you complete this sentence? Right now, I count everything as lost compared to knowing Jesus except fill in the blank. Right now, I count everything as lost compared to knowing Jesus except what would you put in the blank? Get that thing in your mind if there is a thing. Because if we can complete that sentence by filling in the blank, then whatever we put in the blank is our false god. It's our functional idol. We're saying that that thing is at, is at least as good as Jesus. And if we believe that, then when when we will not rejoice in the Lord as fully as we ought. We will only rejoice in the Lord when we have Jesus and that thing. And so really our joy and identity is resting on that thing as much as it is on Jesus. Or it may be a combination of things that we put in the blank. So we come to think of Jesus as better than any single thing but not necessarily better than any cluster of things. Because when we start to think about the cluster of things we have to count as loss, 
well, then that feels like loss. It feels like it don't take all that, pastor. We got to give up all of that. That's why I think Paul's list of reasons that he could be confident in the flesh is so profound. He's listing the entire, his entire previous identity and everything that came with it. See, sometimes it's the combination that steals our joy. Because we think the combination is as good as Jesus. It's not, beloved. To do math the way they do math in heaven, we have to understand that Jesus plus anything is loss. But Jesus minus everything is gain. That's the secret of joy. That's the secret of contentment, which Paul will come to a little bit later. That's why it doesn't matter what's going on with Paul, whether he's in prison or he's free or, or, or whether he abounds or he abased, whether he's beaten or whether he's eaten well. That's why he's not shaken by the changes that happen inevitably, inevitably in life. Change is going to come. Difficulty is going to come. What's flowing now might be stopped up later. And if our identity and our joy is riding on that, then our identity and our joy wise the wave of whatever's happening. But if it's all Jesus all the time, if he's our identity and our joy, then God can add or take away the pieces as it pleases him. He can give and take away, and we will say like Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how you get there. Is when Jesus is your everything. And you don't need anything in addition to it. Now, what does this kind of joy look like? Because I suggested to you in the introduction, it doesn't look like getting busy with a whole bunch of more activities. There are activities, but if, but if, if Christ is the center of our joy... What, what, what does that look like? For a lot of Christians, it, it's, for us, it's, it's, it, it can feel fairly, again, ethereal, misty, vague. Well, Paul gives us three goals in verses 9 to 11 that really define what he's talking about when he talks about gaining Christ. And, and this, is, this should define for us what it means for us to have Christ, to enjoy him, to exult in him, to delight in him. Three goals. Number one, you see it there at verse 9, to gain, at the end of verse 8, to gain Christ. What does that mean? Well, it, it means, as is explained in verse 9, to be found in him have, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. We gain Christ through faith. We don't gain Christ and his salvation through works, through anything that we do. If you're here this morning, you're thinking about what it means to become a Christian, this is really clear to understand. You do not become a Christian. You do not satisfy God's requirement of you by doing stuff. The righteousness that Paul talks about here 
is not a matter of your perfect moral integrity. If it is, you're going to be judged and you're going to be sentenced to hell. You need a perfect righteousness, which none of us have. That righteousness, notice, does not come from me in obeying the law. It comes, at the end of verse 9, from God through faith in Jesus. To gain Christ means to believe in Jesus, to trust him, to stake your soul on the fact that he is the son of God who died on the cross for your sins. And as the Bible says in Romans 1 verse 5, was raised from the grave for your justification. That is, for your righteousness. All of Jesus' obedience and all of his obedience which takes him to the cross, that is your righteousness if you believe in Jesus. To gain him, you must trust him. And when you trust him, God declares you righteous. And to enjoy him, listen now, to enjoy him, you must live like you're righteous. You must live with the knowledge that your trial, the verdict has already been reached. When you turn to Christ in faith, God the judge said, righteous. Sam, you're righteous. Jessica, you're righteous. Tunde, you are right with God. My brother Terrence, you don't have to work for righteousness. Christ is your righteousness, and God receives you as he receives Christ. Derek and Valerie, God is your righteousness. Now, to enjoy Jesus, you got to live in that. Not trembling as if one day it'll be taken away. Not trembling as if there's still some witnesses to come to the stand and testify against you. Not, not running away and cowering because you, you're afraid you might mess up. You will mess up. But it never depended upon you. It always depended upon Jesus. And because your righteousness comes from Jesus through faith, this is what Luther means when he says you can sin more boldly. He don't mean go out and sin now. He don't, you know, don't, don't sin because it's all of grace. No, he's saying because you've been freed from worrying about how your deeds please God, you may now live to please God without worrying about your deeds. Oh, when, you, when we wake up in the morning, this is a part of the gospel we should preach to ourselves. We are the righteousness of Christ. He has become righteousness for us. And we should live in the freedom that that gives. Paul says, I, I want to gain Christ and be found righteous through faith in him. But notice the second thing that he says there. He says, I want to know him. Verse 10. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. Notice here what he says at the end. Becoming like him in his death. What is Paul talking about? Well, he goes from gaining Christ through faith to knowing Christ in experience. He's saying there, everything that is true of Jesus in the gospel, I want to be true of me. I want to share that part of Jesus' life. 
with him. He says, I, I want to know the power of his resurrection. It's striking because in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, the same power which raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you as you believe. So that power is already coursing through the Christian. Paul is saying here he wants to live in a more conscious dependence upon that power. A power so great, it reverses the effect of death. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And to live as Christians, we're going to need a power outside of ourselves. And we have it. Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings. Now, that's where, we, that's where people start backing up. Like, wait a minute. I like the forgiveness part and the righteousness part and the joy part. I ain't signed up for the suffering part. Remember what Paul says a little bit early in Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 28 or so. For it has been granted to you for his sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. The gift has two parts, both faith and suffering. And here's what we have to know. Both parts teach us about Jesus. Both parts allow us to get to know Jesus. <laughs> we don't want to be those folks who are, see, to only want to know Jesus when we're triumphing, when we're victor victorious, that makes us fair with the friends. You, you got some friends who only want to come around when you got money, right? You got some friends who only want to come around when things going well. You can't find them when you need some money, when you're suffering. Jesus ain't looking for friends like that. To know Jesus, we want to know him both in the power of his resurrection, which is his victory, but also to share in his sufferings. And we gain in both. We get to know different aspects of our Lord's character. When he suffered, he suffered as a righteous person. And when he suffered, as the old preachers say, he never said a mumbling word. He didn't curse. He didn't revile. He entrusted himself to his heavenly father. We will learn how to suffer well if we share with Jesus in his sufferings. And we will learn more about our Lord and delight in him as we see more of his character, that we might become like him in his death, that we may die in a manner worthy of Christ. Whether we die from so-called natural causes or, or disease or whether we die on the mission field proclaiming the name of Christ, that we might, as Paul says in Philippians 1.21, declare in either case to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul says, this is what I want to know about him. How to both be victorious and to suffer so that I can become like him. And then we see the third goal there, the third thing as to what it means to, to know him in verse 11. That I may by any means necessary attain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to live currently in the power of the resurrection. And when his life is over, he wants to live in the presence of the resurrected Lord. Uh, Paul is saying here, listen, the secret of my joy is going after Jesus. To, to gain him through faith. 
to know him through experience and then to have him, to possess him finally in the resurrection where there is no more death, there is no more dying, there is no more suffering, where God will wipe every tear from our eyes, where we will be ushered into his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, where the saints will eat from the healing leaves of the trees and and where there be no temple and no sun because God and the, the Lamb will be the temple of that place and will be the light and the glory of that place. Where we will cast down crowns, still looking away from ourselves and looking up into the faith in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul says, whatever it takes, I want the resurrection. I want my part in it. And notice, that's active speech, beloved. He, he wants to attain the resurrection. Again, not as a matter of self-righteousness, but, but he understands that the kingdom of heaven is taken by force. You've got to press into it. You've got to press through this world. You've got to resist some enemies. There's some dogs out there. There's some mutilators of the flesh. There's some evildoers. Paul is saying, whatever it takes, I want to fix my focus on that day when Christ comes again and shouts and the angel blows the trumpet and the dead in Christ rise again and are caught up together with him in the air. I I want to be ready on that day when the trumpet sounds. Yes. And Paul said, I ain't playing church. Yeah. I ain't pretending to be a Christian. Yeah. You know, I ain't trying to look good for all y'all. I'm in prison right now looking to Jesus. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to get out or if I'm going to die, but I tell you this one thing I do, I press toward the mark, toward the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, and the thought of that day being with Jesus face to face, of seeing him and knowing him as he is, the one who bled and died and gave himself in love for us, who rose again and ascended in glory and is coming again with the same glory. That's the goal. That's the day we look for. That's the day that takes these broken days and fill it with joy. Look away from yourself. Look forward to Christ. Look out for dogs and hope in Jesus. Beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian yet, oh, Lord, God holds out to you joy. It may be that you've seen such a bad example of what it means to be a Christian that you think becoming a Christian is an end to joy. It's not true, beloved. It's the beginning of joy, real joy, not the joy that's based on activities and not the joy that is escapism, not the joy that's just about you. It's the kind of joy that you'll never have to be ashamed of, the kind of joy you'll never have to repent of. It's the kind of joy that will never be taken away from you. The Lord Jesus promised his disciples that he would give them joy and that the joy he gives, the world can't take away. When we call you to follow Jesus, we're calling you to come get your joy. To do it, you've got to look away from yourself, all of yourself. You've got to turn away from your sin and you've got to put your hope in Jesus as the Lord crucified for you. 
to atone for your sin and raise from the grave that you might live forever in righteousness. And everyone who believes in this Jesus discovers this joy. We call you to come to Jesus so that you might have joy and have it more abundantly. And beloved, let's conclude with just a quick summary. How do we increase our joy? Well, it's by making Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom our passion. The central animating ideas and persons of our soul. And how do we make Jesus our passion? This text says, by thinking about him. By counting him exceedingly more valuable than everything else in the world. And then by seeking to live in experience with him. Count him your joy. Seek him with your life. This is how he becomes your passion. Do you want to know Jesus like this? I hope so. That's where God has placed your greatest joy. In his son. Indeed, Jesus is the center of our joy. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us a deep and abiding joy in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to count the way the kingdom counts. To consider Jesus as gain and in comparison everything else as loss. Help us to count everything else as rubbish and to see Jesus in his glory to glory in him. Lord, we have so many entanglements from this world. Help us to break free of them. Help us, O oh Lord, to look away from ourselves and the things that we would boast in in our flesh. Help us to have no confidence in the flesh so that our only confidence, our only boast would be in Christ our Lord. And Lord, fill us with the soul, with the, with the joy. Fill us with the joy that will flood our souls when we gain Christ and know him and attain the resurrection with him. Lord, there are those who need help with joy this morning. There are those who are fighting for joy this morning. Those who think joy is an illusion this morning. Help those in need of help. Grant victory to those who are fighting. Show the realness of joy in Christ to those who disbelieve. Be gracious to us one and all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.